He went from being one of the, the greatest opponents of Jesus to being one of the greatest servants of Jesus. And it's one of my favorite um, stories in the entire Bible. It's the story of a man that we know best as Paul. Now, when we meet him here in the book of Acts, he, he doesn't go by his, uh, his name, his Greek name. He goes by his Hebrew name, Saul. And, and I want you to see how Jesus transformed his life, how Jesus did this incredible work in this man's life. And the, the truth is, his story shows us that Jesus can transform your life as well, and if you will yield to him. And I want us to read the story from the Word of God, and we're going to be looking at verses 1 through 22 of Acts chapter 9. I want to ask you, if you would, to stand in honor of the reading of the Word of God. Acts chapter 9, beginning in verse 1. Now Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord, went to the high priest and asked for letters from him to the synagogues at Damascus, so that if he found any belonging to the way, he might, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. And as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and it will be told you what you must do. The men who traveled with him stood speechless, hearing the voice, but seeing no one. And Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were opened, he could see nothing. And leading him by the hand, they brought him into Damascus. And he was there three days without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Here I am, Lord. And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight, and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying and has, been, has seen a vision and a man named Ananias come in and lays hands upon him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here he has authority from the chief priests to bind all who call on your name. But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house, and after laying his hands on him said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on the road by which you were coming, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales, and he regained his sight, and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. Now for several days he was with the disciples who were at Damascus, and immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. And all those, who, all those hearing him continued to be amazed, and they were saying, is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on this name? 
and who had come here for the purpose of binding, bringing them bound before the chief priests. But Saul kept increasing in strength and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that Jesus Christ is, or Jesus is the Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for this uh, incredible testimony of your power to transform. And we pray that today as we look at the events that you have described here in greater detail, that you would fill us with the confidence that you can do the same in our lives. And Father, we pray as we sang this morning that your Holy Spirit would fill this room with his presence, that his power might fall upon all of us, or that you might begin the work of greater transformation of those of who are believers, and Lord, that you might call those into your kingdom, those who do not know you. And today, uh, we trust you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. He lost his mother when he was just a child. And then he went to sea while he was still a child, 11 years old. And like the sailors of his day, he lived a life of rebellion and debauchery. And, and for several years, he worked on slave ships, capturing slaves for sale to the plantations of the New World. And he sank so low in his life that he became a slave himself, the captive of another slave trader. When he tried to escape, uh, he jumped overboard in the harbor and his master harpooned him in the side and literally drug him back onto the ship. And while he was laying in the, in the hold of the ship, suffering and, and recovering, someone had given him a copy of Thomas A. Kempis' uh, a classic work, Imitation of Christ, and he began to read. That planted the seed of the gospel in his life for his eventual conversion. And that came some years later during a terrifying storm at sea when it, the crew thought all was lost. And he cried out to God to save him and deliver him. And eventually, um, he became the captain of his own slave ship. But after all the events that occurred in his life, the reading of this classic work and this horrible storm, he yielded his life and trusted Christ. And he went on to become one of the leaders of the evangelical movement in the 18th century in England. He was uh, uh, alongside men such as John and Charles Wesley, George Whitfield, Wilbur Wilberforce. And on his tombstone is inscribed the following epithet written by this man himself. And it says this, John Newton, clerk, once an infidel and libertine, a servant of slaves of slavers in Africa was by the rich mercy of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ preserved, restored, pardoned, and appointed to preach the faith 
he had long labored to destroy it. And of course, by now, you probably know that this is the man who penned the beloved hymn, Amazing Grace. And it is a story, along with many others in the history of church, that highlight the power of Jesus Christ to transform lives. John Newton knew exactly what he was talking about when he wrote that famous poem. He knew the amazing grace of Jesus Christ in his life. But no transformation is as remarkable or has had such far-reaching effects upon history as the conversion of the man that we know as Saul of Tarsus. That's no doubt why it's recorded for us in Scripture no less than three times. His story demonstrates that Jesus has the power to transform lives. And listen, he will transform your life. He will transform it radically, visibly. He will transform your life emotionally, spiritually, and eternally. Today, I want you to consider how Jesus can transform your life, or how Jesus can continue to transform your life. Uh, There are three stages to this transformation. First, Jesus can reach you when you are far from him. Think about that. Jesus can reach you when you are far from him. Verse 1 says that now Saul was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. This is not the first time that we have encountered Saul in the book of Acts. We met him at the end of chapter 7 and at the beginning of Acts chapter 8. And you remember that when, when Stephen was being stoned for his faith in Christ, that those who were stoning him brought their garments and laid them at the feet of a young man named Saul. And that it says that Saul was approving of the execution of Stephen. Uh, He was a rising young star among the religious leaders of Jerusalem. He was born in Tarsus, but he had been raised in the city of Jerusalem. And, And he had studied at the feet of the greatest rabbi of that day, a man by the name of Gamaliel. And he he knew the scriptures backward and forward. He knew the scriptures extremely well. And he considered himself a, a teacher and a defender of the law. So when he heard that this man that called himself the son of God and had been crucified and died on a cross, his reaction was, Cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. In his thinking, this man could not possibly be the son of God because that would mean that God himself had become cursed. And when he heard that the followers of Jesus had the audacity to say that this man who had died on a cross and had had been raised from the dead, it was now the only way of salvation... It, it just went through him 
to the very core of his being. It offended him deeply. And he was determined to do everything within his power to wipe out this this perversion of Judaism called the way. And that's exactly what he began to do. In Acts chapter 8 and verse 3, it tells us that Saul began ravaging the church. And he began entering house after house, dragging the men and women out of that and putting them in prison. See, and when we get to to chapter 9 and verse 1, well, Saul has not let up. It says Saul was still breathing threats and murders against the disciples of the Lord. And when it says he was breathing threats and murders, it doesn't mean that he was making oral threats to them. But it means that with every breath that he took, his, he was devoted to ridding Judaism of these Christians. This had become his life. It had consumed him. That was all, he was identified as the, the destroyer of Christianity. And it, it says in, in verse one, the last part of that verse, he says, he even went to the high priest and asked for letters from the, from the, from him to the synagogues at Damascus. So that if any found belonging to the way, both men and women, he might bring them bound to Jerusalem. You see, he is so devoted to the extermination of Christianity that he was willing to travel about 150 miles to the other end of Palestine to, to ex, expedite or to extradite these people who were believers, bring them back bound to Jerusalem and try them for their, for their heresy, for their blasphemy, for calling this man God. And notice that uh, on the map there, you can see that's a long way for him to go, all the way to the other extreme there. And, and the Christians here are called any belonging to the way. That's likely a reference to Jesus' statement in John fourteen six, where he says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And um, Saul considered that blasphemy. He, 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 he treated these people like they were the worst of criminals because of saying that. And even though Saul was an intensely religious person, he was far, far from God. And this passage shows us uh, that God is about the business of reaching out to people who are far from him. You say, what does God do to reach people who are far from him? Well, there's a pattern that is seen here that I think that is pretty common. It's one that we see God engaging in oftentimes. And, and, And by the way, if you have never turned to Christ, you have never repented of your sins, you have never made him your Lord and Savior, you are far from God. And you are in danger of the judgment of God. And you you could be sitting here in church today, right here in this place, and you can be as far from God as an atheist sitting in a bar. Because the only difference is that makes the difference is it's when we have yielded our life to Jesus Christ. That makes all the difference. 
So what, what does Jesus do to reach people when they are far from him? Well, first, what will he do? He will confront you. See, in verse 3, as he was traveling, it happened that he was approaching Damascus, and suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him, and he fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now, that's a pretty dramatic confrontation when you say, you know, this bright light and a voice from heaven, that's pretty dramatic. And it says, as he was traveling and he was approaching Damascus. And again, we'll show you this on the map, and we don't know this exactly for sure, but somewhere in this area is where this event occurred in Saul's life. It also reminds me of the passage that we looked at the last time, Isaiah 53, 6. All we, like sheep, have gone astray, each one to his own way. You see, Saul was on his own road, going his own way, making his own decisions far, far from God. And Paul was suddenly confronted by, says, by a light from heaven that flashed around him. And he fell to the ground and he heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul. Now listen, when God calls your name twice, it's serious. Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Now that was a direct, unmistakable confrontation. There was no doubt about this. And if there was any doubt, then it was all cleared up when Jesus uh, tells him, who he is. And later, in Acts chapter 26 and verse 14, Paul tells us, he's retelling this story, giving his testimony, and he tells, he tells us something, he adds something to what Jesus said to him there. And he, and he says, and when, he had, when we had fallen to the ground, I heard a voice saying to me in the Hebrew dialect, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? Listen, it is hard for you to kick Against the goads. Now, a goad is simply a sharp stick. And then ox drivers would use it to uh, prod oxen to make them move. Oxen are pretty stubborn, and if you take your stick and beat them on the back, they just kind of ignore you. But on the back part of their heel, they have a little, have some fairly tender part of their anatomy. And so the ox driver takes his little sharp stick and he pokes that ox on the back of the leg, and and he jumps, he moves. He doesn't like that. And sometimes when the ox driver would would poke him with the stick, the ox would kick against it, kind of a natural reaction. And when he would kick against the stick, what would happen? Well, it just causes him more pain. And you see, this is exactly what was happening with Saul. God had been working in Saul's life. God had been showing him the truth of who Jesus was. But Saul continued to resist that truth and to to ignore the, the truth that God was showing him. He was blind to who Jesus was and ironically he becomes blind physically in his life. And you know, it's also interesting to me, this is, this is most often how people imagine that they would like God to communicate with them. 
They say, I would love to have a big, bright light, you know, shine around me. I'd just like to have a voice from heaven that would speak to me and tell me exactly what to do. But let me tell you something. This confrontation was not a privileged comfort to Paul. This was terrifying. This is the result of God's working because he has refused to hear God's other means of communicating to him. This is a, a more direct confrontation. And Paul already knew the truth about Jesus. Do you, you realize that? There is no new revelation here. Paul had already heard Stephen preach an incredible message where he, he used, where he explained how Jesus fit into the Old Testament narrative. He already knew the truth. He just didn't believe it. He just wouldn't accept it. And this is classic, ignorant unbelief. As Jesus assessed his own situation, he says, you're kicking against the goads. That means you are resisting the truth. That's the way it was. That's the way it is oftentimes with us as well. God reveals the truth to us through the gospel. What do we often do? We just ignore it. So what does God do? God, God goads us. He, he prods us. He gives us a little stick to get our attention, to direct us toward the truth. But what do we do? We resist it. We kick against it, even though when we do that, it often kind of causes more pain in our lives. He causes us to, to feel more distant from God. And when we continue to resist God's goading, God's prodding, then he comes to us with a more direct confrontation. You know, one of the most uh, common ways that God comes to a people who are ignoring him is he, he confronts us with crisis. It may be a health crisis. It may be blindness. Like it was with Paul. It, it, it may be a, an accident that we're involved in, a, a, a hurt, a pain, an illness that we develop. Who knows? Now, I'm not saying that every illness, every accident is, is some kind of judgment of God, but I'm simply saying that oftentimes God uses these things to confront us with where we really are. It may be a financial crisis. You know, the loss of a job, the, the failure of investments. It may be some natural disaster. You know, on our East Coast, it's, it's hard to tell how many people God is working in their lives even now in the midst of difficulties. Prodding, sticking, directing, turning people back. Look up. It may be a relational crisis, an affair, a divorce, estrangement from children, conflict at work. All kinds of things come. It may be your own emptiness, your own loneliness. But you see, God has his ways of getting our attention, of confronting us with where we really are spiritually in our relationship to him. And he knows what's best. 
And, and when he does it, when he, when he brings that into it, it'll always be clear that that's what's happening. And, and when the Lord gets your attention, you know what he does? He convicts you. And it says in there that Jesus says to Saul, 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 why are you persecuting me? Notice that Jesus specifically names the sin against him that Saul is guilty of. He says, you're persecuting me. To persecute someone is to, um, is to subject them to the hostility and ill treatment because of their religious beliefs or because of their practices. And, and Saul was certainly guilty of that. I mean, we've already seen that he likely instigated the stoning of Stephen. He's already been involved in dragging men and women out of their homes and putting them in prison. But with this confrontation, Saul suddenly realized that in spite of his religion, he is a sinner in danger of the judgment of God. And you see... When someone persecutes believers, they they persecute Jesus. When you stand against Christians, you stand against Christ. And Jesus says, you are persecuting me. But listen, you don't have to be a violent persecutor of Jesus to be against him or to be in danger of, of the judgment of God. Any sin puts you in danger of the judgment of God because all sin ultimately is against God and against his character, against his nature. So when we engage in sin, we are engaging in an activity that is against God. It may be just the run-of-the-mill selfishness. Maybe like Saul, you're filled with anger about the things that have happened in your life or the circumstances that you find yourself in. Uh, you may be filled with, with, with hatred for someone or for some group. Uh, you may engage in gossip or slander. Maybe it's just road rage. You know, that every time you get on the road now, you just, you're, you're ready to, to give it to somebody. It may be lying. You know, the common lying is in our world today, it's a way of life in America today. Stealing coveting, looking at all the things other people have, wanting it, the idolatry, the taking the material things that the Lord has blessed us with and and valuing or even over God himself, putting those things first before before God. And the the other sins that just seem to be overwhelming America today is the, uh, you talk about uh, storm surge, is lust, pornography, immorality, adultery. We just saw a video, what's overwhelming, Huntington, drunkenness, drug abuse. So everywhere we turn, we're just, we're just inundated with these things. And friends, these things separate us, put us against God, and they put us in danger of the judgment of God. And ultimately, all people who go to hell do so because they refuse to accept Jesus or or to to surrender to Jesus as their Lord and their Savior in favor of their own self-determination and sin. 
We choose those things over Jesus. And when you choose to live apart from Jesus Christ, you are as guilty of crimes against God as Saul himself was. As Saul would later write in 1 Corinthians 16, 22, he says, If anyone does not love the Lord, let him be accursed. And Jesus said that the Holy Spirit will convict men concerning sin because they do not believe in me. John 16, 9. See, the crime of all crimes for which people will be eternally damned is a failure to love and obey Jesus Christ. And so he convicts you. He confronts you. He convicts you very specifically with the sin that you are guilty of. And then he converts you. Look at verse 5. And he said, Who are you, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. Now, I think, I think Saul knew the answer to that question even as he was asking it. He calls him Lord, acknowledging his deity, acknowledging his sovereignty in his life. And if there was any doubt, then it's erased when he heard this voice from heaven saying, I am Jesus. And this was the realization of his worst nightmare. He suddenly comes to realize that Jesus is indeed the Messiah. The gospel that I have been persecuting is true, and I find myself fighting against God Almighty himself. In that same moment, the guilt is so overwhelming. In that same moment, Saul's resistance was crushed, and his heart was broken by repentance, and he was healed by faith. And I think as we look at Paul's writings, uh, 1 Timothy chapter 1, beginning in verse 13, probably sum up how Paul was feeling and that Saul was feeling in that moment. It says there, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. Verse 15 says, It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am the foremost of all. Some translations say the chief of all sinners. And and verse 16, Yet for this reason I found mercy. So that in me, as, a, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. I was a blasphemer. I was a persecutor. I was ravaging the church. And I am the chief of all sinners. And yet God, by his grace, came into my life, confronted me, convicted me, and changed my life, saved me and healed me by his grace. And he says, God did that in my life. He did that in the life of the the foremost of all sinners, the chief of all sinners, to show that God can save anybody. Anybody. Have you ever looked at somebody and thought, that person is so far from God that they'll never be reached? I'm sure there were some people that thought that about me. Have you ever thought that about yourself? 
But you see, the only kind of person that Jesus comes for is sinners. The only person he comes into the world for are people who are far from him. That's who he came for. Us who are far from him in our sin. And, and, and he, later, the apostle Paul writes in Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 13, he says, but now in Christ Jesus, you who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. All of us here formerly were far off. But we have been confronted, we have been convicted, we have been converted, and we have been brought near to God by His grace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Jesus can reach you when you are far from Him. Maybe you feel very far distant from God today. Listen, God's talking to you. God is speaking to you. No, it's not a light from heaven. No, it's not a voice from heaven. My friend, let me tell you, it is a voice from the Word of God. He's speaking to you. And number two, Jesus can transform your deepest shame into His greatest glory. Look with me at, at verse 10. Now, there was a disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And the Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he said, Here I am, Lord. Here's a, here's a disciple who's, who's available to be used by the Lord. Verse 11, And the Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight and inquire at the house of Judas for a man from Tarsus named Saul. For he is praying. And he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. Verse 13, Ananias is a little uneasy about this command. But Ananias answered, Lord, I've heard from many about this man, how much harm he did to your saints at Jerusalem. And here, well, he has authority from the chief priest to bind all who call on your name. And it tells us later in verse 26 that when he came to Jerusalem, that is Saul, he was trying to associate with the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he was a disciple. See, this is the way that people looked upon Saul. The transformation in his life was so great that they could not even imagine that this man could possibly be a disciple of Jesus Christ. They could not comprehend how that could be happening. This must be a trick to infiltrate our ranks and allow him to identify who the Christians are so that he can take them off to prison. But listen, no one is beyond God's reach. And he, he says in verse 15, But the Lord said to him, Go, for he is a chosen instrument of mine, to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the sons of Israel. For I will show him how much he must suffer for my name's sake. So Ananias departed and entered the house and after laying his hands on him, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road which you were coming has sent me so that you may regain your sight 
and be filled with the Holy Spirit. And immediately there fell from his eyes something like scales. And he regained his sight and he got up and was baptized. And he took food and was strengthened. So Saul's life is totally transformed. You see, everything is new. He has a new master, a new Lord. Jesus is Lord. And now he has a new life. He has eternal life. He has a new mission. He's going to bear my name before the Gentiles and the kings and the sons of Israel. He has a new power. He is filled with the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is the agent of change and transformation in our lives. And, and he did what the Holy Spirit tells him to do. Now, what did the Holy Spirit do with this man? He did two things. First, God refined the usable characteristics in his life. That's what happens in regeneration. That's what happens when you're born again, when you're converted. You see, God takes what's already there, what's already in your DNA. God doesn't change your personality when you get saved. He doesn't make you move you from being an extrovert to being an introvert or vice versa. God doesn't change your physical appearance. God doesn't uh, take away any of your gifts or your talents or your abilities, but God takes all of the uh, that he created you to be and he uses it in his kingdom. He takes all that you are as a person and uses it in an incredible way. See, those were all things that were Paul's by creation. But then the second thing that he does is the Holy Spirit replaces the unusable characteristics of our life. He takes all of that anger and all of that hatred that Saul had for the believers, and he replaces it with love, with joy, with peace, patience, kindness, gentleness, understand, uh, uh, self-control. He, he has all the aspects of the Holy Spirit. And God empowers him then to use that, the gifts and abilities that God has given him in the ministry of the gospel. So, and listen, that's what the Lord does in the life of every believer. If anyone is in Christ Jesus, he's a new creation. The old things are gone. Behold, new things have come. You've got a new Lord You've got a new life. You've got a, a new vision, a new perspective. You've got a, a new mission. You've got a new power. You've got a new family. You're new. And God uses the things in, in Paul's life that caused him the greatest embarrassment and shame for his glory. In, in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 9 Paul writes, for I, for I am the least of the apostles, and I'm not fit to be called an apostle because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am, and his grace toward me did not prove vain, but I labored even more than all of them, yet not I, but the grace of God with me. I'm not worthy to be an apostle I, 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 I'm so guilty of all this evil that I have done. But yet it's God's grace that has come into my life and changed it all and taken all that I was using in a, in a, a wrong and an evil way and God is now taking and using it for His glory. 
And God can take a devastated, ruined life and he can transform it into something glorious and amazing. You see, his grace is an amazing grace. No matter what you've done, no matter what you've been involved in, God can take your life and transform it. Mel Trotter was a, was a barber by profession, but he was a, a drunkard by practice. And he had, he had promised his wife over and over again that he would stop drinking, but he couldn't. They, they had only one child. And when that boy was about two years old, Mel came home from a drinking spree. And here's what he said. I went home after a 10-day drunk and found him dead in his mother's arms. I'll never forget that day. I was a slave, and I knew it. It It pretty nearly broke my heart. I said, I'm a murderer. I'm anything but a man. I can't stand it, and I won't stand it. And he put his arms around his wife and he swore on his son's coffin that he would never take another drink of alcohol. That night, he opened his son's casket and stole the shoes off the feet of that child that it was to be buried in. He went and pawned those shoes to get money to buy alcohol. He missed the funeral. And two hours afterwards, he came stumbling home drunk. That day, January 19th, 1897, Mel Trotter determined that he would kill himself. Still under the influence of alcohol, he began staggering through the streets of Chicago, determined that he was going to find a place to throw himself into the icy waters of Lake Michigan, unable to break his, his habit, unable to keep his promises. He just wanted to die. His path took him by way of the Pacific Mission Garden and, or a mission. He heard singing, and he paused to look in one of the doors. A man there pulled him in out of the cold. And there was a man by the name of Harry Monroe leading the singing. And when he saw Mr. Trotter, he stopped the singing. He went to the back of the room. He put his hands on his shoulder, and he just began to pray, God, save this poor fellow. Over and over, God, save this poor fellow. God, please save this man. And the man and Mel Trotter sat down there in the back. And Harry Monroe came up front and he began to share how he had himself once been an alcoholic, unable to to break the power of its hold on his life. And he began to share how Jesus Christ had changed him, had delivered him from its power. And that night, Mel Trotter listened and he believed And he put his faith in Jesus Christ to change him. And that is exactly what he did. He changed him. And 
Mel became almost immediately burdened for other men on Skid Row. And he opened a rescue mission in Grand, in, in Grand Rapid, Rapids, Michigan. And over time, he, he opened over 60 rescue missions all across the United States from Boston to San Francisco. And God used him in a mighty way to save many men uh, the power of alcohol. Jesus transformed Mel Trotter's deepest shame into his greatest glory. And I want to tell you, Jesus did that in my life as well. And Jesus can transform your life. He can take the things that you are ashamed of, the things that you don't even want to think about or, or anybody to talk about, and he can take them and he can radically transform it and use it for his glory. Don't ever think that you have done so many bad things that God cannot reach you. He reaches people who are far from him. He confronts us. He convicts us. He converts us. And then he transforms us into the person that he wants us to be. God loves you just as you are. But God loves you too much to allow you to stay where you are. He will transform you for his greatest glory. And finally, Jesus can use every part of who you are. This is the one that amazes me. In, in verse 20, it says, And immediately he began to proclaim Jesus in the synagogue, saying, He is the Son of God. Verse 21, All those hearing him continue to be amazed, and were saying, Is this not he who in Jerusalem destroyed those who called on his name? And who come here for the purpose of bringing them bound before the chief priests? Verse 22, but Saul kept increasing in strength and, and confounding the Jews who lived at Damascus by proving that this Jesus is the Christ. And Luke, Luke tells us that immediately after he was converted, you know what he does? He begins to proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God. He's got a new urgency. He knows how important it is now. He knows this is the key to it all. And, and they, but they were suspicious of him. They, they said, man, how, how is this possible? How is this change possible? How can the man who was, who was killing Christians now be proclaiming that Jesus Christ, Jesus is the Christ? And it says in verse 22 that he was confounding them. That, that, is, that means that they just could not understand how such a radical change could occur in a person. And he says he was proving that Jesus is the Christ. That word proving is also an interesting word because it means to put things together in order. It means to arrange things in, in, a, in a way that it makes sense. It's like putting a, a, a puzzle together putting the pieces together, arranging them to make the picture. 
And here's what, here's what he was doing. You see, part of the puzzle that they didn't get, one of the reasons they were confounded, is because they didn't recognize that God had actually been at work in, Saul, in Saul's life from the very beginning, preparing him for this moment in his life. God is already doing that. So in the moment he is, he is transformed, there he is, he's already proclaiming Christ. Saul didn't know it. He, he was in rebellion against God. He, he hated Jesus. He was killing Christians. But God was working to prepare him. He had studied the Old Testament. And he knew the Old Testament perhaps better than any human alive on planet Earth at that moment in history. He had at least the equivalent of two PhDs. He was the premier man, the, the preeminent among Jews. And, and when he came to know Jesus as Savior, the scales not only fell from his eyes physically, they fell from his eyes spiritually. And now, all of a sudden, the Old Testament came alive in his hands. The, 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 the scriptures ignited and began to flame, became a flame with the, with the glory of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ jumps off of every page of the Old Testament. He sees Jesus in the writings of Moses. He sees Jesus in the Psalms. He sees Jesus in the prophets. He sees Jesus in, in the Passover. He sees Jesus in the sacrifices. He sees Jesus in the tabernacle, in the temple. Everywhere he looks in the Old Testament, he sees the glory of Jesus. And only he can take all of that knowledge and put it together in this incredible way. Nobody else can do that. Look what Peter couldn't do it like that. John couldn't do it like Saul could. Those men were unlettered. They couldn't even read the Old Testament for themselves. But God has prepared this man, Saul, for this moment. The man who knows the Scriptures better than anyone else. And he's going to put the puzzle together for the world to see Jesus. Incredible things that God does. God can use things in your life that you would never imagine that he could use. He can use every part of who you are. I, I always remember, I, I remember well the day that I came forward at my church in Houston and declared that I believe that God had called me to be a pastor. At the time, I, I was an art director for an international company. Um, it was a great job, a lot of money. Um, it was just a God thing, part of his preparation. And I and I had done a lot of work in our church uh, with my artwork. And I couldn't, I, I, it, was, it was fascinating to me that day how many people said to me, boy, Kenny, it sure is a shame to waste all that talent. I'm like, Wait a minute. <laughs> I just told you I'm going to go into the ministry and people saying, yeah, it's, well, it's a shame to waste all that talent. God doesn't waste anything. And, and I, I could tell you that I literally, I believe this is true. I, I believe that there have been thousands, literally thousands of people who have heard the gospel who would never have heard the gospel apart from the fact that an American came from uh, overseas and would draw a picture and I have 
been in closed countries, communist countries, where I've had large audience of people watch me draw a picture while I tell them the gospel. I've seen numerous people trust Christ as a result of a silly little chalk drawing. I have been on a military base with soldiers and listened to soldiers who never would have heard the gospel hear it because they wanted to see somebody draw a picture while they talked. God never wastes anything. I couldn't have imagined that. I mean, I thought when I got saved, I thought, well, I'm just going to be an artist that serves the Lord. I never could see any of those things. But, but God, always, whatever you are, whatever abilities, talents, skills you have, God can use them. Incredible ways, ways you would never imagine for his glory. You see, think again about what Jesus will do in your life. He'll reach you. He'll confront you. He'll convict you. He'll convert you. He'll transform you. And he'll use you. Yes, you. I've seen it all over this room seen it. One thing about being here for 24 years, I've seen God do it in a lot of lives. God does it. I see that happening and I I praise God for that, for the incredible things I've seen. I I wish you could have, he's not here today. I'll talk about him just for a moment. But I I see Chuck Grayley. I almost cried seeing him standing there in front of a little hut presenting the gospel to a mom and about four kids. And that mom said, yes, I want to follow Jesus. I just can see what God, Chuck would have been the last one to say that he would ever be able to lead somebody to Christ. But I saw him do it. And friend, God can take your life and he can do marvelous, wonderful things if you will yield to him. Maybe you're here today and you feel far from God. You don't feel like you, you are anything special at all. Maybe you don't. You say, I, 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 you know, that would never be me. That, that's the story for somebody else to tell. Listen, God can use you. He will use you if you will let him. You yield to him. And this is true for two kinds of people. This is true for people who have never trusted him. And, and I, I'd be convinced that today that God is confronting you and that God is convicting you and that he will convert you if you allow him. If you'll say yes, he will convert you and he will transform you in a moment. In a moment in time, your whole life can be different by faith. You've been trying. Maybe you've been trying. I've been trying to be a good person. I've been trying to be, you know, this. You're just like Mel Trotter trying to quit drinking on his own. You can't do it. Only Jesus can transform you. And if you say yes to him, he will do it. And there are believers here today that, you know, you've been converted. You've, you've been transformed. But somewhere along the lines... The transformation has slowed down and you've gotten comfortable and satisfied. 
Listen, God wants to continue to work in your life. He wants you to say to him, yes, Lord, continue to change me. Continue to use me. And he will. You yield to him today and he will. Be obedient to him. Some of you, some of you need to, to come and be members here at Good Shepherd. Some of you need to come and trust Christ. You need to obey him. So I'm going to ask you, just a moment, just to bow your heads, close your eyes.